0: See, we're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, and I'm here today with someone I've known online for several years now. Uh, I think we met through a mutual acquaintance online. That was uh, Kelly Hurst. And today, we're going to talk to Shayna White. Hi, Shayna. How are you? I'm
1: good. Good. Busy. I think like everybody else is, and trying to survive a pandemic and literally the dumpster fire that is the United States. But... <laughs> For the most part, I, I I'm I cannot complain. Everybody's healthy in my family, so we're good. All
0: right. I I from where I'm sitting, it looks like you're thriving. You you're you're, uh, <laughs> you're making some big moves this last year.
1: Yeah, I'm tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to make more of a difference uh, and kind of increase my sphere of influence. I've enjoyed the sphere of influence I've had being in the classroom for a long time, but mm. I feel like. So many more kids deserve better. And so I've been trying to work with other people to help make things better for kids in schools.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, we're going to go into all of that. But first, we're going to do icebreaker questions. Are you ready? Sure. (laughs) You sound dubious, but trust me, these are easy. Okay. Okay. The first question is, what is the last thing that you watched on television?
1: Um, people are always surprised, but I watch a show called New Amsterdam that comes on NBC. Hmm. Um, it's a medical drama, but like, I really am into it because of the like rom-com Finally, the two main characters finally got together this season. Um, So I'm all about rom-com things. Uh Um, And so it's a great balance of like a rom-com, but also like a medical drama. So I watch that every Tuesday night. And then I watch the replay again the following day. Oh my God. Because I'm so addicted to the show. (laughs) Who's in it? I've never heard of the show. Um, Ryan Engel and Freema, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but Uh she was in Doctor Who, but it's really... uh, cast that has black and brown people you have disabled people um it's just like a really phenomenal cast ensemble and it's it's not like er was um er had kind of the rom-com things it's a little less serious than er Mm -hmm. at certain times but they do talk about like racism and hard-hitting issues which i like um and they handle those issues uh quite well considering the show is run by uh white
0: men Excellent. This is a great review. Maybe you should just quit all your day job and start reviewing these shows. (laughs) Because no, what what I do now, I
1: found I found the people on Twitter that love the show. Oh yeah, literally, I just literally read their tweets all day. It's gotten so bad that I'm just kind of like, I don't really care about like what's going on in the world. I just want (laughs) to read what these people, like they have fanfics and everything. So I found my like new little niche on Twitter. So it's like, I've discarded all education related tweets and it's all like new (laughs) Amsterdam related tweets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is excellent. And it's actually, to me, that is the best use of Twitter. That is the whole point, right? Is to (laughs) find people that you, uh, that you actually agree with on things and schmooze with them
1: exactly excellent
0: (laughs) well i will check it out um okay okay so i did not know for some reason i did not realize this about you Uh that you were uh a big fan of the rom-com what what do you what do you think is like the greatest rom-com ever
1: Oh, that is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you like my top five. Okay. All right. Um, and I would not say these are in order, but these are like the five that I would watch on a regular basis. Hitch is definitely one. Okay. I love uh the movie, The American President. Oh my God. I love Ooh. that
0: movie. Yeah. Yes. That,
1: that movie, I can watch that on repeat um, yep. all the time. This is an Old one, and a lot of people are going to be surprised that I like it. But it stars Cary Grant. Oh, and <laughs> it's an Affair to Remember. I huh. love that movie. Have I seen um, it? I don't.
0: Who is the Who is the female lead?
1: Oh, I I knew you were going to ask me that, and I don't know her name, but I will look it up really quickly. But basically, it's the movie where he's um basically he's a kind of like a playboy type of guy, and. They meet on a cruise ship and he takes her to meet his grandmother who's in Greece and they fall in love on the cruise ship. And then she ends up like becoming a teacher and doing her own thing. And then she, they were planning to meet at the top of the Empire State Building. Oh, yes. Um, on Valentine's Day. Yes. And she gets, into it, she gets hit by a car <gasps> and doesn't have the like courage to tell him. So he thinks she just didn't show up. Not that like, she didn't like she was intending to be there. She just got hit by a car. Um, and she ends up being paralyzed. And then they find that out at the very, very end. And it's just it's they have a very cute, funny part, but it's just a old fashioned romantic comedy.
0: Oh uh, I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that. I don't think I've ever seen this. I just know the reference to them meeting uh-huh. on the the top of the Eiffel Tower. Yes. And I love old movies. So I should check that one out for sure.
1: Yes, it's a it's a very good I mean, like I said, they have it in color. And it's just it's very cute. And so a lot of times it's weird, because like my mom is always into like the Turner home classic movies. Yeah, And he was even when I was growing up. Uh And that's how the first that's how I saw it for the first time. And I was like, Oh, this movie is kind of cute. And so I've just continued to like watch it since then. So it's it's just the like old school romantic comedy. I think a lot of other like uh, Sleepless in Seattle is another one yep. that I like. And that one plays off of yep. the Empire State Building and the story from the other movie. So it's those I would say those four fifth one would be hard to give you. But I would say those four definitely. And if I randomly think of those, but like I literally watch I would say those on repeat. Um, uh-huh. not, that was like. I think my husband has finally figured me out Um, (laughs) after 16 years of marriage. Basically, like for birthday presents, he just buys me like Google Play movies that like rom-coms that I like. And he's Uh like, here, that way you can watch this movie whenever you want to, anytime. Like he just purchases the movie. So that's usually what I get for my birthday presents from him. And so he's bought all of those movies for birthday presents so I can watch them anytime on Google Play.
0: Oh, is he is he like a super romantic person or is that just absolutely you? not? Yeah, <laughs> I would tell
1: you the literally the funny thing that I tell people about is like he and I actually went to high school oh. and my best friend in high school had the biggest crush on him. Like I was not like I was into basically like sports mm. and my parents were very strict so I couldn't do anything. Uh-huh. He could just do whatever. He was like a star football player. And But my friend was a cheerleader and she was just in love with him. Um, And I would have to hear all the stories on the phone with her talking about him. And I'm like, I don't see it. Like, (laughs) I mean, he's cool, but like, I don't see why you're like infatuated with this dude. And we reconnected. Like after we both finished college or whatever, like working out, that was something that was really important to both of us is we actually reconnected at a gym Mm -hmm. um, and we were playing pickup basketball. And then he's Uh like, hey, you Uh want to get a smoothie afterwards? And so we went and got a smoothie. We started dating and then the rest is history.
0: (laughs) His pickup line at Pickup Basketball was let's go get a smoothie.
1: It yeah, works. It you works. You want to go get a smoothie, exactly.
0: <laughs> very smooth. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. The second icebreaker question, and you're doing amazing, by the way. Okay. Good. Is what was the last book that you read?
1: <laughs> the last book I read. Um, I I'm a my reading is very like weird in the sense of I'll read books and then stop. Mm-hmm. And then I'll pick up another book and then start reading it. So I'm like in the middle of like three or four books. Okay. But the book that I've read in completion is Race After Technology by Dr. Ruha Benjamin. Um, and that one I read twice just because it was so good. But I'm in the middle of a Franz Fannin book. And I'm also in the middle of uh, Sophia Noble's book, Algorithm of, of Oppression, reading it for the second time. Is it um, good?
0: I still haven't read it. And so many yes,
1: people, it's re- it's really good. Um, It's really like sad because like you realize how much damage tech continues to do mm-hmm. to people's psyches and just in our spaces. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that part, it makes it sad, but it's like so much information and it's like, I'm a big person about like, I always want to know people's why, but I also want people to have as much information as possible. So they make good decisions. Yep. And so this just gives you so much information. Like you can't deny how harmful tech has been, wow. um, especially towards black girls um, and any other people of color. So I just love the wealth of information, her book and Dr. Uh, Ruha Benjamin's books, both just have tons of really good information. That's like, You can't dispute it it's like these this is factually happening right now
0: wow yeah yeah i mean i think that that's sort of the i mean i you know i I beat this drum a lot but the the problem is that it's so ubiquitous right like we are now so immersed in technology it's very hard to just stop and take Mm -hmm. a look at it because Mm -hmm. these are things that like within a decade we've become so dependent on them it's really hard to have this sort of like Critical thinking around it, but it's amazing that there are people that are doing that. Yes, um, and I, I hope, my sincere hope is that because I, I'm a big fan. I love technology, mm-hmm. but uh, my hope is that technologists think about these things, that they take heed and understand the power of what they're doing yes. and how it's. Because I don't, I don't think everybody in tech is evil, but I no. also think that a lot of evil happens out of sheer ignorance.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think the other thing that like I think is the balance that people have to understand is that like tech is so just automated that like we've kind of like lost the humanity of what we're doing. And so I want to say like Dr. Uh, Tressie uh, Cotton, who's like phenomenal on Twitter, she talks about that intersection, and so does Sophia Noble and uh, Ruha Benjamin the intersection of like sociology and technology yeah. um, that like we're impacting people and the ethics behind that. And like, why are we making decisions to make these things harmful and surveilling people and collecting data without letting them know? Yeah, There's a lot of just ethical aspects to yep. technology that are not considered. And I think it's because most people that are in CS, they're very just technology driven and not thinking about the sociology side or the human side of technology and like how I might write this algorithm could literally like hurt somebody else or how I make this technology tool could not be accessible to a certain group of people. And we've lost that in the translation, but I think that's all just a part of like white supremacy's ways to keep things the way they are. Um, because we'd rather people be harmed to disrupt the natural order of things that we assume, which is white supremacy, instead of saying, you know what, like, we can do better than this.
0: Yes, ma'am. I think there are, uh, I think there are people that are paying attention. And it's just, um, we're so we're we're down, we're down the road. And we're trying to fix it as we're, you know, going ahead uh, at a million miles an hour. And, uh, but you know, what they say shana check yourself before you wreck yourself there you go. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna yeah we're gonna we're gonna get all fucked up if we don't exactly. figure this out exactly yeah <laughs> um whatever i'll be dead by then <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay um and then the final icebreaker question is what did you have for breakfast today
1: i normally don't eat breakfast Uh, and I know it's bad. Like, and I think it's honestly, it's because of my schedule. Like today was just different just because, um, my boss gave me permission to sleep in because I've been traveling, um, recently. Uh, but normally I go to the gym, um, in the mornings and then I usually try to eat something after that, but I didn't go to the gym this morning. I slept in. And then my kids had a digital learning day, which means that they stay at home, and all their assignments are online for a day, and it's basically to just give the teachers a break for mm-hmm. kids for the day. So that kind of disrupted my schedule because I was trying to sleep in, and then they're both like, "I'm already done with all my assignments. What should I do?" And I'm like, "Go away from me right now." Like, <laughs> I literally just want to sleep. Um, so it's just a combination of a different morning up uh, for me. But normally for me, I'm very breakfast. I'm really particular. Uh, there's some breakfast bowls that, uh, I can't think of the company that makes them, but basically they have like eggs and bacon and potatoes and like onions and peppers. So like a little breakfast bowl is usually Mm -hmm. what I'll eat for breakfast. Um, if I do eat breakfast and then sometimes it's literally just, I'll get chai latte from Starbucks and that be my breakfast and water. And then I just go and work until lunchtime. And then I eat usually a pretty, pretty big lunch
0: wow do you not want to like take a nap after that though
1: no yes and no like for some reason i get my second wind after i eat but then there are times where i'm just kind of like i think i might need to lay it down uh and i think that that's (laughs) like that's the lovely privilege of my new job is that like because my hours are so fluctuating like today i'll be working until like 8 30 tonight there are times that i can sit there and like just kind of zone out like Take a little bit bit of a break. Start texting people. You know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. my boss does it. She's like probably like the like nice, kindest, and most supportive person I've ever met in my entire life. And so wow. to have that type of a relationship with your boss, where they like want the best for you and like are supportive of anything that you want to do, is huge. And so like if I like, there are times where she's just like, I'm just gonna go for a run. Like people stress her out because she is so nice. <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of people that I'm like, you should punch them in the throat. Like that would make you feel better. <laughs> but for her, just going for a run makes her feel better. Um, and feel yeah. so, like she wants us to take care of ourselves. So she's like, I don't know how you do it. You have two kids, you're married, like, and you're like f- high functioning with this job. If you need to like shut it down, shut it down. Like if you need to take, yeah. PTO, take PTO, so she's just very completely understanding. And so there are times like I'll eat a big lunch and I'm just kind of like, I'll just like take a little quick 30 minute nap and I take a little power nap and then I get back to work.
0: I'm a, I'm a big believer in the nap. And I believe Mm -hmm. that we should bring that back to, uh, I don't even know, like pre like, I don't know what the hell is going on in our culture where people don't take naps during the day Mm -hmm. because it's kind of normal, like in human history for people to take naps. Absolutely. So whatever. We
1: we literally like, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I remember I used to look forward to. I know people said that people used to fight naps when they were in school, but like when I was uh-huh. in kindergarten, we took naps, and I was like looking forward to it. I was just kind of like, this is the best part of the day. Like <laughs> I don't have to think. I'm just chilling. <laughs> there's nothing to worry about. Even if I don't fall asleep, like there's nowhere I have to be. Nothing I have to do, um, except just to like breathe in and out. That's it. <laughs> um, wow. so I wish more because there's a lot of people that need naps. Uh Um, And I would just say there's a lot of adults. I think that they would do a lot better thinking about things if they took some more naps.
0: Uh, Agreed. (laughs) Myself included. But yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, you should be in charge of more things, I think.
1: (laughs) I'm telling people all the time, like people say, oh, you should lead this and lead that. And I was like, I do not like adults enough to want to lead them like. I'm about kids and adults Uh usually mess up everything. And so that's why I was like, I tell my boss all the time, I'm like, I could never be you. She's like the CEO of our organization leading so many adults. And I'm just kind of like, I don't have the patience for these people. (laughs) Like, I literally just want to punch them in the throat and then just keep it moving um, and continue on. But you have to like be diplomatic about it and be like, okay, where do we find a common ground? Those types of stuff. So I was like, yeah, I can't lead adults. If I could build my own island and just literally like separate myself from all the people that are just nonsense, that would be great to <laughs> have all the people that are like cool and get it because we all would be on the same vibe. It's kind of like, take a nap, yeah. take a nap. You want to go yeah. get a drink, go get a drink. <laughs> you want to do whatever, like, and it's not going to be hurtful to somebody else, do whatever. But I'd like an island like that. And then the rest of these other people can just go destroy whatever they want to destroy.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, I I am I'm I'm here. For it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So tell me now because we're done with the yes. icebreakers. Well done, very well done. Um, so now you you have been talking about your job. Can you tell us exactly what your job is?
1: Sure. Um, it is my official title is I'm the Senior Associate of Computer Science Equity and Justice Initiatives at the Kapor Center. And the Kapor Center is, Big's premise is to level the playing area in tech. And so Mm -hmm. we have several different divisions. The division I work with is solely related on K-12, computer science education. So part of my job entails basically like, just helping and supporting teachers. Um, Right now I'm currently running a a year-long teacher PD that helps teachers better understand whiteness, white supremacy, how the identities they bring in the classroom can impact their classroom, how they can better be culturally responsive to students in their classroom. I'm also working on building some curriculum um, and lesson activities that are culturally responsive that basically show that CS can be culturally responsive and still be something that is going to challenge uh, students. Because a lot of times we have this big misnomer that if I make something culturally relevant, it's not going to be rigorous, even though I think Mm -hmm. rigor is just a crappy word. But I want people to realize that like you can challenge kids with stuff that they culturally understand and still apply it to CS. And then a lot of, unfortunately, my boss has me doing a lot of speaking. That's why I've been traveling the past few days. Mm -hmm. And so I do go speak uh, to certain organizations, but just a lot of movement around CS and making it more equitable um, with the extreme focus of making sure that we have more uh, Black, Latinx and Native students uh, getting access to quality CS, because I think the big thing that people think is, oh. We have a CS class here, but is it really like a quality CS class or are you just putting them on a computer and making them go through some program on a computer? Like are you really teaching them? Are you showing how this applies to their communities, applies to their life, how they can utilize technology to make things better? Or are you just like I said, giving them a program on a computer and saying, "Just go through these lessons and you've officially learned computer science."
0: I think that's also above and beyond all of the work that you're doing. I think that's been sort of an a refrain mm-hmm. in in the criticism of traditional you know schooling mm-hmm. is that you know people uh, educators are either by choice because they're crappy mm-hmm. educators or because of the mm-hmm. system they don't have the opportunity to make things right. relevant in the in you know in the ways that they need to be and are really stuck to this kind of teaching to the test kind of thing yeah.
1: And and that's the one thing I think I, I had a really good conversation with some people yesterday about standardized tests and like just assessments in general. And I was telling them, I said, if it's a, if anything is tied to a standardized test, it can never be equitable. You can't make a standardized test equitable because mm-hmm. there's one group that is going to be left out. There's no standardized test that exists that meets the needs of every single student that would take it. And so if you understand that premise and you basically build your classroom outside of that standardized test and you make everything equitable, prior to the standardized test, you'll have better outcomes for students on that standardized test because they would have seen a little bit of everything mm-hmm. um, because you would have made an intentional effort to be equitable with your teaching and bringing in their community and being culturally responsive. So even if they do well or don't do well on the standardized test, they would have learned more, which to me is, should be the goal, not if a kid can pass a test or do well on a test, but if they've learned more that they can apply as they move further along in becoming citizens.
0: Yeah, I and that's really the goal, right? I mean, that's right. the whole point. Um, and I think, and I get it. I do get it. Like, I live in Texas. Where are you?
1: I am in Georgia. You're
0: in Georgia. Okay. Yep. Metro Atlanta, Georgia. All right. Well, I think we have similar uh, makeup of our state mm-hmm. legislature, and yep. we, you know, I I understand that education is funded by taxes, and mm-hmm. you know, there's this pressure that educators and lawmakers feel to be able to show, quantifiably show that right. the system is working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's really hard to get away from that. You know, it yeah. is hard to get away from that. You, you kind of have to prove to the public, here's what we're doing with your money. Mm-hmm. What is, in your opinion, the best measure for K through K through 12 education success
1: Oh, I, I think and I think that's what I said to the person yesterday. I was like, if there is a way to assess fairly and equitably, that person would be a trillionaire because testing companies are already <laughs> making billions of dollars off of yeah. kids yeah. and they're doing it the wrong way. Um, I don't know. I just think that there's just got to be a variety of modalities that you are assessing a child's understanding of something. Yeah. Um, and I think that, yes, is there like relevance to doing a Scantron Sure, every once in a while, but there's a lot of kids that cannot literally translate what they've learned to a actual test question that gives me just four answers to choose from. And so I think the big thing that I guess I encourage teachers to do is allow kids to demonstrate in whatever way works for them that they understand what they've learned. And so for some kids that might be taking a test, but for some kids that might be like making a video, it might be them making some sort of presentation. It might be them like writing something. And so I think like offering those different modalities where kids can demonstrate their understanding of content, I think is key. And I know that there are some teachers that are doing that for their like formative and summative assessments during the time but ultimately they're still bound by having to do standardized tests and so that's just one of the things that like as a teacher I think it's that was the one thing that I would say I was blessed by because I was not in a ELA or math classroom where they're literally bound with like deep knots to standardized tests So I could do different types of assessments in a computer science class or a health science class, but my other, you know, colleagues were not afforded that opportunity. So I think it was just, there's a way that you can have kids demonstrate that they know something, even if it is just verbally like, hey, tell me everything you know that you learned about this unit and have the kids just, you know, record themselves on an audio uh, file, whatever method I think doesn't necessarily matter, but I know that standardized testing or just like filling out a scantron and bubbling in multiple choice questions is not the best way.
0: Right. I don't know that anybody thinks it's the best way. And I think even people who insist on them know that they're, I don't know, maybe some people love it. I don't, I, I, but right. pretty much everyone I've ever talked to, you know, at least in the field of education is like, yeah, this is bullshit. Like right. <laughs> we, we do it because we have to. And because there's no other way, but, um. but I do think, you know, we also have a really nasty habit of trying to define value in ways that don't always that don't always appreciate the incredible diversity of gifts right yes. that kids Absolutely. and adults have and so I think that's that's where the real mm-hmm. tragedy is is yeah even a kid who's good at taking tests right I mean i i I was good at taking tests I you know sit down fill mm-hmm. out the bubbles whatever it's multiple choice how you could only right. be so wrong, but I don't think that that ever really gave me. I I don't think that that actually was a way to measure what real value I I had as a as a student or as a person. Absolutely. And I think that that's especially true, mm-hmm. you know, as you state in in cases where those tests are almost exclusively created and uh, administered by people who are white or who are part of you know the yeah. white system. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't even know what they're looking for when it comes to to assessing kids, um, children of color or children on the spectrum or any of that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the that's the part that I think is so disheartening um, just as a teacher, like you said, because like so many kids and parents, that's the only thing they know to tie value to is how did your child do on a standardized test? And that's one thing that I, my husband and I actually like go about in different ways. I try to explain to him, I'm like, our children's grades do not matter. (laughs) As long as they're learning and they're in a safe environment, that's really all that I care about. But he sometimes gets upset if they get Mm -hmm. a low grade on something. And I'm just kind of like, okay, my question always is why? Like, what did you not, you know, did you not feel like, you were prepared for this test? Was there something that you didn't understand? Um, Rather than just looking at the grade and saying, okay, the child's like a failure because they messed up this one test. And so I wish that didn't happen because you have so many kids that get stigmatized as like low achieving or whatever, just based on these standardized test or grades. And then you have so many kids, like you said, kids, especially students with disabilities that are being completely Mm -hmm. underserved in our public schools, who we have a lot of cases, a lot of teachers have no expectations for. I've seen it in my own building at times where like literally teachers don't even teach the kids with disabilities. They're you know mainstreamed into other courses and they just sit there and just tell them to color a coloring sheet. And it's just kind of like your job as a teacher is to make sure that all students are learning in your classroom. And even though that's an extra load of work that we have to do as teachers. A lot of teachers don't really want to. And that's the same. It goes for our students that mm-hmm. English is not their first language, um, that we sit there and automatically just force like, hey, you just have to learn English. Like that's instead of saying "There, like, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to show how asset based I'm thinking and saying like, wow, you're brilliant in your native language. Why don't you go ahead and do your project? I will find a way to translate it, whatever the case may be, or you can find a way to translate it and you do your project and turn it in, in your native language. And it's my job to be able to yeah. grade it. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of times yeah. that I did that, especially luckily, like i Learn just from my years of teaching, I've learned some of the basics that I would need to explain to um, my students who speak Spanish. But I did have a lot of Vietnamese students, I had Korean students, and those are languages that I'm not familiar with. And so it's one of those things which is kind of like, I'm going to do the best I can on Google translate to make sure that you understand what I want from you. And then you produce whatever you can in whatever language you feel Lovely. comfortable.
0: Doing. That's amazing. And okay. teachers like that make all the difference, right? They're the ones that, that people remember. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that make help kids actually see their own potential. It's a, it's a, yep. such an important thing. And unfortunately it's, it's kind of rare. You don't get that with every single person who holds that title or that position. And I, the other thing that I think is really important, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I I think that it kind of plays nicely into that conversation, is that I don't think like education is based on relationships, right? It's not just the dissemination yep. of information. It's not just a download, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just conveying zeros and ones.
1: No. It
0: requires right. a relationship, and in a relationship, you know. It goes both ways. The teaching and the learning goes both ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best teachers are those who, as you said, you know, they they take a look at a kid who might be potentially brilliant in another language. that The teacher doesn't speak. And rather than trying to force the child, right, that the teacher meets them where Mm -hmm. they are, learns something themselves, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, and then uh, creates the space for a relationship to build so that learning can happen. And so much of education and and I, I get all of, I, I mean, I am not bagging on teachers. I know how hard their job is and I know Mm -hmm. how shitty the system can be, but, uh, yeah, it's just not an ideal situation to, um, to just have one person sitting there spouting information in one way and then expecting all kids to benefit.
1: Right. It's just, I mean, I think, I think the model that we have for education I mean, it's been flawed since its inception. It's been inequitable since its inception. It's been racist Mm -hmm. since its inception. And so when you have all those big major flaws in a system, you can't expect amazing things to come from it. And so on one hand, it's like, yeah, there are teachers. I mean, the lady in, I think she was in California or whatever, that was like doing some sort of like native dance, she said. Um, You have teachers like that that need to be out of buildings and away from kids permanently. And then you have teachers that I know of that are doing those things as far as building the relationships, not, we we always phrase it as being the sage on the stage. A lot of teachers still think that they're in control of the classroom and not thinking that this is our classroom community. And that's the one thing that I always stressed with teachers that I do PD with and then just myself is that like, the students, y'all have as much ownership of this classroom as I do. And so how are we going to build this classroom community where everybody respects and recognizes the, the various identities that we all have, um, the various ways we learn, etc. cetera? That's something that we have to work together to do. And that's through like communication, not just me telling you what to do, but it's you giving me feedback and saying, hey, this didn't work for me, Miss White. Can we do it in a different way? Um, And I said, it's not a disrespectful thing to give somebody criticism. And a lot of times I think teachers equate criticism to disrespect. um, And I think that those are two totally different things, but we have to be open to criticism. But I think a lot of teachers, even though the job, I would say, I mean, I did it for 16 years. It is very, very hard. And the expectations that are on us because of the way the system has been built are completely unfair in a lot of cases. But ultimately, like I got to the point where I was just kind of like, I think I would say probably like year seven or eight. I was like, all I can control is what happens in my classroom. And so I'm gonna do the best I can and be a good steward of what happens in my classroom. I can't control this whole system. I can't control how my kids are treated when they're not in my classroom, but I can control how they're treated in my classroom and how my classroom functions. Um, and I think if more teachers take that sense of autonomy, because we don't have a lot of agency and autonomy as a most public school teachers, especially in like yep. way to work states like Texas and Georgia, yep. but ultimately saying, you know what, I'm gonna control what I can, which is just my classroom space. I'm just gonna close the door. When the administration comes in, we can pretend like we're not, you know, talking about critical race theory. Even though nobody in K-12 education has ever taught critical race theory, but you know, there are some people that make you believe that they've been taught it since the 1970s. But it's one of those things where it's kind of like when I close my door, we can talk about identities. Everybody's welcome here. Like I had my first trans um, boy student in my class a couple years ago and I was the first person that they came out to. And it was one of those things where it was like, he said i only felt comfortable coming out because you said everybody's identities wow. are respected and recognized in this classroom wow. and it's one of those things where i didn't know what to do and so i luckily have really good friends that are teachers that are in the lgbq community and i said what things do i need to do to make sure that my space is like comfortable for this student and the first thing that i was warned about um by jess Lifschitz, she's an amazing uh teacher up in the north she said find out if they go to the bathroom. And when I asked, they said they had not used the bathroom and this was October. They had not used the bathroom at school since school had started in August. And I said, oh my gosh. And that's one of those things for me as like a cis hetero person, I don't even, I didn't even think about that. You know what I mean? And so it's lucky for me that I have such good community of teachers that those areas that I might be short-sighted in um, and not think about, that I can bring those into my classroom. And so that was the very first thing I did that day was we're going to figure out a bathroom situation for you. And we eventually figured out um, that he could go into the clinic and use the bathroom there, but nobody had even asked. And that's what he said. He's like, nobody's even asked me if I've been able to go to the bathroom. And I was like, I have a really good friend who told me I should. Um, And now I'm glad that I have because the fact that you haven't been using the bathroom at school, like that's not healthy. That can't be good for your body. And so certain things like that, I think like, like I said, is controlling what I can control. And so I knew, hey, I can control making sure that this child had a safe place to go to the bathroom um, while they were in school. Um, And that's going back to the whole like, teachers realize that we do have power but we can only really control what goes on in our classroom space and just using our power to the utmost ability to control the classroom space not to where we're the dominant force but to where you literally build a community in your classroom where kids want to be there and you want to be yeah. there as a teacher yeah
0: as well. you create space you create the space and you make yeah. it safe and then you lead by example yep. i think it's a uh, beautiful and i also think that there can be no greater honor than to have somebody who, especially where there's a power differential like that, where a teacher and a student mm-hmm. um, feels comfortable coming to you and sharing something so incredibly personal. I think that's a testament to the kind of teacher that you were or are. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I hope, I wish more teachers were that way, um, but the ones that are, I And I've met a few of those in my day, (laughs) right? And Mm -hmm. while I was in school, I think uh, they they do, they make all the difference in the world. So yes, thank you. Thank you for for being that kind of teacher.
1: Yeah, I I felt it to be an extreme privilege um, to be in the classroom. Um, I know a lot of people sometimes don't, you know, have just these expectations for students. And for me, they are just Mm -hmm. brilliant human beings that, in some ways are just not treated with the respect that they should. Um, And they're not seen in a lot of places as full human beings. And so I was like, that's what I can do is say, hey, in this space, you are a full human being, you have agency and autonomy. And ultimately, this is a community classroom where I want everybody to feel not only safe, but brave. And I think that that's the other big kind of like misnomer that people think is that, Oh, we want to have a safe space. Mm -hmm. And yes you do, but you also want it to be brave because you want kids to be able to take chances to challenge themselves to realize, Hey, like, I'm going to really like take a leap, especially in a field like computer science, like computer science can be very difficult and complicated at times. And so I don't want people to feel like, hey, I'm safe. And so I can just play it easy. I want you to challenge yourself and say, hey, I'm going to have this idea. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to try it. And that to me is like the perfect ideal classroom where kids feel safe enough to be themselves, but also brave enough to try things and go out on a limb and challenge themselves, knowing that like hey, I still have the support of my teacher. I still have the support of my uh, peers. And even if I fail at this, I'm not a failure as a person. And I think that that's what a brave space does It makes students realize it's okay to fail because a lot of times kids don't wanna try because they've gotten the big you know, idea that everything is based on grades or standardized tests and you yeah. are what your grade is in the class. And so I've learned more from failing from things and doing it the wrong way than doing it the right way every single time. Um, and I don't feel you grow as a person unless you do things the not perfect way every single time. And that's what I wanted my kids to kind of understand in the classroom is that like there are multiple ways to get to this end point. How you get there it's not for me to decide, it's for you to decide, and you can problem solve, is this the best way for me to get to this endpoint? point? Um, because that's part of you developing your problem solving and critical thinking skills. Because ultimately, like, I care about you as being a person in this world, and I don't care if you really do learn my subject matter, it'd be great if you did. But ultimately, I want you to be able to take the processes that you use to complete tasks in my class and say, I can apply this as a mother when I'm 34, or as a businesswoman when I'm like 62, or whatever you end up being in life, you can take those processes that you worked on figuring out what works for you and what helps lead to you being successful in my classroom to being a good person um, as you enter the world yeah. Um, yeah. on your own. Yeah,
0: wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I want to go back and revisit the idea around. Understanding your limitations and working within those limitations Mm -hmm. to affect change. And because this is something I think a lot about, right? I mean, you and and I know you Mm because I follow you on Twitter and uh, Facebook. And Mm -hmm. you think a lot about these big problems in the world and uh, race Mm -hmm. just being one of them, you know, education and all kinds of Mm -hmm. issues where there are deep challenges. Right. And it's very easy to want to give up because it's hard to make change. It's hard to see change. You know, and I know a lot of very good people who have been working for their whole lives and they, you know, you get burnt out because it feels like, in fact, a really good friend of mine posted the other day about how it feels like, you know, you build, you're building sandcastles every day, right? You go, you build Mm -hmm. a sandcastle, it gets Mm -hmm. washed away. And so I guess when, when you look at the broad context of where we are, And you and I live in 21st century America. We see so many problems in such sharp relief, more than ever before, thanks to digital media. Mm -hmm. And you see all these folks out there who are working really hard to address them. And some of them seem like they're spinning their wheels. And then I see people who pick a spot, right? They pick a spot and they do what they can Mm -hmm. with what they have, where they are and maybe they're not changing the whole world but they are changing that tiny little as you said your their sphere of influence right and mm-hmm. i'm curious to know if you would find that pres- like is this would you consider that a prescriptive method for widespread change or is it just a coping mechanism <laughs> which it can it could be both
1: i would say for me it's uh-huh. a coping mechanism just because there are so many times i've been overwhelmed just with the sheer magnitude of even being in a classroom and some of the stuff that my students would be comfortable enough sharing that were going on in their you know home lives and just everything and you're just kind of like I don't know I, I think it I think for me and I would say probably it's been for a while my my family and I I've been a Christian for a number of years and I would say not until probably like six or seven years ago. I was just kind of like what are we doing like as christians like this is trash like this is nowhere near what jesus like intended for us to be like and i've struggled with my faith because i'm just kind of like why are all like the people that literally need to be thrown into a lake of fire they're Mm -hmm. thriving and the people that are struggling are struggling even more or being harmed even more and I struggle with that because there's so many people that I see that are just in this state of when will this end? Will I get a break that I can breathe? Whatever the case may be, and it's like it feels like, I feel like they never do. And so I think for me it it had been, and I think it still kind of is a coping mechanism to just kind of say, you know what, kind of control what you can only control because ultimately you'll like you said be spinning your wheels and mm-hmm. never ending. But at the same time, like, I feel like I do have to extend myself. There's a um, a verse in the uh, Bible, Luke 12, 48, that says, to whom much is given, much mm. is required. And I believe in my heart, and I have since I was born, that I'm extremely blessed. Am I a marginalized individual? Yes, I'm a black woman living in the United States. Yes, but I have so many privileges. I've never had to want for anything as far as money is related, like my family always provided for me and I'm able to provide for um, my family now. I've never had to deal with you know any type of backlash about uh, my sexual orientation because I'm a cis heterosexual woman. I've never had to deal with, even though I'm learning, and I that's one of the things that I do appreciate about Twitter is learning more about disabilities. I do wear glasses, but I never even, Think or thought about that as a disability until Amani Bar Aaron said, she goes, you know what, that is a disability, but because there's so many tools available to help people, like glasses and contacts and LASIKs and all that kind of stuff, people don't think of it as a disability, but it is. Um, and so for me, it's kind of like, how can I be a better ally to the disabled community? Yeah, I wear glasses and contacts, but there are other people that are having a lot more impediments to like living a normal life in society because people don't want to make accessibility a thing and so i think there's so many times that i'm like you know what there's a little bit more that i can do outside my sphere influence and so i try to every once in a while but then i've realized and i have a really good circle of friends that kind of say you know what like you're overextending yourself you're doing a bit too much and you're wearing yourself thin. And so you won't be able to devote that time and effort and passion to the things you truly care about, which for me is K-12 education um, and making it anti-racist and anti-bias and trauma-informed and basically welcoming and inclusive of all students. I don't have the energy to do that if I'm, you know, over in left field working on this other project. And that was kind of the thing that I struggled with during this pandemic is I felt like I should be doing more as far as like, helping people get to their vaccine appointments or like making sure the community was aware the vaccines were safe and that type of stuff. But then I was like, you know what, maybe mm-hmm. that's not my lane. Um, mm-hmm. And I think our whole lives we go through sometimes merging into lanes that we shouldn't necessarily merge into. Sometimes it's it's good for us to merge into other lanes because we find other passions. But I think for me, I would say it's more self-preservation to understand this is my sphere of influence Yes, I would say for me, that is also one of my privileges. I have a very large social sphere of influence just from being on Twitter, that I can connect people, I can contact people, ask them questions, those types of things. But at the same token, like I think once again, this is where my faith comes in, is that like God innately blessed me with these things and this kind of tunnel vision to make education better. And so, yeah, are there other things I can help out with to make other people's lives better when I can? Sure. But ultimately, like all of my tunnel vision focus has got to be on that thing. And then that way I can give it my all um, so I can see the greatest impact once I'm no longer here. Yeah,
0: That's very wise. And it's taken me 47 years just to get to that point uh, Mm -hmm. because I am like, you know, like you. I see so many things out there that I want to help with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And also not even just help, but also do try, learn, you know, like I, it's, there's just so much and everything is so interesting and people are so cool. And I just want to be a part of all these things. And then you realize Mm -hmm. that you haven't accomplished anything. If you, if you don't like pick your lane and fucking stay in it for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's, I think that's right. I also feel like this as a coping mechanism is not an, Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a healthy coping mechanism. I don't mean that in a Mm -hmm. bad way. I think it's actually, Mm -hmm. A way for us to because you know we we've evolved in very small communities for most of like mm-hmm. you know human history and now we're suddenly put in these environments virtual and real where we yeah. have um, exposure to so much right and it is right. overwhelming and we're not necessarily equipped mentally emotionally spiritually uh mm-hmm. to handle all of that and so you know you know what you were saying about your friends oh my mm-hmm. god that is gold that is absolutely pure mm-hmm. gold that there are people that can advise you when to pull back and when to practice yes. that self-preservation because there are people who especially if your heart is big you'll just mm-hmm. go out there and waste yourself you'll just throw yep. yourself down there and let you know and just d- destroy yourself and then you're no good to anyone Yep.
1: I mean, that's exactly it. And like I said, it's, I mean, I'm 43. So it's taken me 43 years yeah. to get to this point. I still struggle at times. And like I said, luckily I have um, a couple really good colleagues at the Cape Center, even besides my boss, that literally say, hey, Shana, have you taken care of yourself today? You know what I mean? And I think having those people that genuinely care about you as a person, not like what you can produce, yeah. Um, yeah. because that's one of the other terrible things of capitalism is that we're just who we, what we produce and what we complete and what we accomplish and life should be more than that. And I would say one of my friends, her name is, uh, Freida She's also my um, colleague at the K4 center. She's a native woman and she's just like, it's okay just to exist. And to hear those words from her on a regular basis just is very grounding to just know. She's just like, she goes, native people, we've been here, forever and she goes we were just we literally relished and loved and honored that people just existed um not for what they could do for us not for how much money they can give us not whatever we just were happy that to exist in their presence and i think taking that perspective is so refreshing because a lot of times You think of yourself, especially when you come from a marginalized background, like I'm all that I do because that's what people measure me by. What did Shayna accomplish? Uh, Not that Shayna just existed and was here. And so I think having that coping mechanism, like you said, I think it is healthy. I still am learning to grasp it because I would say just like, candidly, I'm very self depreciating. I do not have like very high thoughts about myself all the Uh time and so it's great to hear from people that are like hey you know what shanna you're really brilliant and i'm like really like no i'm not and they're like okay you're not arguing me your answer is thank you to all those things and so i think it's just like sitting there saying you know what in 43 years i feel like i have done the best that i can and that's okay um and that it's okay at this point to just focus on my lane um, and exist. And when I can have extra time to help out in a lane that's not mine, you know, do, but don't overextend yourself to the point where you forget what you know truly your purpose is for being here and what you were kind of like made to do uh, to make a difference in the world. Because ultimately I feel like a lot of people think, that I don't. I, I don't wanna say they wanna be bigger than their sphere of influence, but I think with social media, it's made this idea of just kind of like, I want to be seen as doing things rather than doing them. And the optics matters more. And for me, optics has never mattered. I know, like I said, when I still stay in contact with students that I taught in high school and now they're married and having kids and they still, you know, even though it's an old people's app, according to a lot of them, Facebook, they still, they still Facebook me and include me on their things. Or they remember when I was pregnant with my daughter coaching basketball. And they're like, I can't believe this was 12 years ago. Like, they still want to find out how my daughter is doing. And those types of things that to me means, you know what, Shana, you are doing the right thing. Because if you weren't, people would not like stop you in the publics and say, hey, because I was called coach wife when I was a coach. <laughs> Coach White, what are you doing? Like Most kids, if they had a teacher or a coach they didn't like, they avoid them like the plague right. when they're like out in public because they, first of all, don't think that teachers, we do anything besides be in the building. <laughs> so that's the first part that's like the harsh reality for kids is like, wow, you actually have a life outside of the school building. Yeah. <laughs> but I know kids wouldn't purposely come up and see me if I did harm to them or if I was not welcoming or inclusive. So those reminders every once in a while are always good, to have and I think help me kind of say, you know what, like I'm on the right track. Yeah, I'm still learning. I'm still learning to like not go out my lane. But ultimately like those things usually reel me in as well. Like, hey, I was doing the right thing or I am doing the right thing. And so this kind of keeps me pursuing doing the right thing.
0: I think you're 100% correct about that. I think we get the illusion, like social media gives us the illusion that we have more control, more power, more influence than we actually do. But when it comes down to it, it is always and always will be about human engagement one-on-one and Mm -hmm. in small groups where you can build that kind of trust and have the kinds of difficult, um, and I don't mean conflict in a bad Mm -hmm. way, but you can have conflict and you can learn and grow and make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, it's almost impossible to do in a big giant global forum. So um, it has its value. I mean, it does have value, but it's not... To me, I, I don't want us to ever forego the relationships. And I, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, last week about this, where he was he was just talking about how he misses certain things, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know why he stopped doing them with people. And I'm like, yeah, go do those things with people. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Well, Shana, this has been a delightful conversation, and it's gone Yay. by way too quickly.
1: i'm glad it was beneficial i was i'm always nervous about these just because i'm like a major introvert and also like some people you don't you don't feel comfortable like just talking to but like it's very easy to talk to you um and it's just one of those things where it's just kind of like okay am i gonna have enough things to say or (laughs) is she gonna be like uh yeah we're not gonna publish your podcast because you really didn't say much
0: (laughs) no no, no. in fact this is this podcast is like the easiest thing i've ever done because i first of all i try to only know interesting people Mm -hmm. and second of all when you get an interesting person and you just start talking to them about what they're passionate about you like it just goes like it, it you don't there's no effort involved here right. like i just have to listen to smart people talk about what they're good at it's fantastic
1: that's good to know i mean i wouldn't say that i'm super smart i would say i'm I'm okay. I'm okay. Well, no, enough <laughs> of this.
0: Enough of that. Enough of that. You're, you're a goddamn genius, Shane. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: All right. All right. Well, uh, I will uh, definitely let folks know where they can find you online in the show okay. notes. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. Thank you and for the joining. work that you do because it's so Thank important. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.